Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. At 40 Strategy, we inspire leaders to grow their companies from startup to 40 million and beyond by designing world-class strategic plans and help keeping those owners and CEOs accountable to actually get it done. To learn more, go to 40strategy.com. We're really excited about our guest here today, Howard Tierski. Howard is a successful entrepreneur who's been named IDG by IDG. He's one of the top 10 digital transformation influencers to follow. And he's also Enterprise Magazine 360 has named him as one of the top 10 digital transformation influencers that will change the world. He's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Winning Digital, digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, and is also the founder of two companies that enabled large brands to win in the digital world from the digital transformation agency in Innovation Loft. And I'm going to let Howard talk more about the other stuff he's done in the business because this is just a little bit of what he shared. But Howard, thank you so much for being on the Measure Success podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Carl. I'm excited to be here. Well, first of all, I'm going to say before you give you a chance to talk to him, I just want to thank you. Before we even started today, you were giving me tips on how to run my podcast better. I was just like, thank you, because this is what you do, that you are in the digital marketing space. You help organizations do more effectively. And it's obviously a lot of large organizations, but Howard, tell us about your business. What are you doing on a day-to-day -to, -day to help your companies grow and succeed? Sure. Well, we work largely with large brands that need to transform and very often transform more rapidly to be relevant to today's digital customer. The pace of change in customer expectations has been unbelievable over the last decade. And of course, only further accelerated during COVID. And there are a lot of great brands that have been around a long time that frankly are still struggling to make sure that they're moving fast enough to meet the pace of those customer expectations. So we work with those brands to understand where they are today, to study their customers and their customers' needs and expectations, and then help them evolve or in some cases, you know, radically transform the customer experience, the products they deliver, the way that they serve the customer, sometimes the business model itself. And uh, that's what we do every day. And it's a lot of fun. What has changed the most today in branding in big co, so to speak, versus 10 years ago? Hmm. Well, you know, I think that today everybody understands and appreciates that digital is probably the single most important driver of business success in this moment in history. And I don't think that 10 years ago that was fully appreciated, understood. Having said that, just because a, a company understands that doesn't necessarily mean that they're able to move forward at the speed that they need, that they're able to transform, they still struggle. But I think that's one, one, one key difference. It's, it's easy to look at those companies that have created the greatest new valuation in the marketplace, for example, over the last few years. And with almost without an exception, they're all companies that would also be ranked at the top in terms of digital excellence, digital experience, you know, how they're positioned with consumers, whether those are businesses or, or end consumers in terms of their digital capabilities. And so I think everybody gets that. So that's, that's, that's great. That's a big change. I find myself less having to, to, to be an evangelist for that. And then we can get right down to, okay, so what do we need to do about it? What is the now today? So, so things have changed so much in the past three years, right? Like there's just been this acceleration 
in in everything to COVID and and the changes happened globally and politically and economically, et cetera. So what what are what are some of the current trends now that you're seeing in digital marketing that if they don't have this, if, if a large customer does not have this type of strategy within digital, they're going to be left behind. Hmm. Well, you know, it sort of depends on the on industry. There, there's a lot of things that are new or new trends. Let's take, for example, cashless. You know, more and more companies are moving away from cash as a primary currency. We've seen a real transformation in the ways people pay for things, the importance of new emerging methods of payment, whether that's things like Venmo, you know, a, a, a Zelle. And the, 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 in, in the background there is cryptocurrency and the question of whether as the new version of Ethereum comes out and cryptocurrencies are more scalable, it becomes more practical for people to use those as tender as well. So I think the payment space is one that is really, really transforming rapidly. But, but I'll tell you honestly, I think that so much of uh, what companies, the companies that aren't where they need to be are missing out on isn't so new. It's not like something just from the last two years or three years. It's a lot of the same principles of creating an easy to use, friendly, delightful customer experience that removes the potholes, removes the points of confusion, pain, disappointment, which so many companies' digital experiences still have today. And when we do analysis, when we do customer research on what is most important to customers and where are the greatest gaps in the customer experiences that many large brands are delivering today, whether those are companies that are our clients or their competitors or, or any other company, nine times out of 10, the, the gaps are things that were gaps three years ago, five years ago. They're not new things. Of course, the level of expectation it keeps going up and the level of tolerance for digital, you know, lack of complete digital elegance continues to decline. Consumers today, they sort of assume that if a brand is delivering a customer experience, a digital experience, which doesn't rise to the level of what they experience from Amazon, Netflix, Uber, Airbnb, et cetera, et cetera, that it's because the brand just doesn't care that much about it. And that's not necessarily true. That's not necessarily an accurate conclusion. But from the research that we do, that is a very common assumption the customers make. And that is in some ways more damaging to the brand than the actual inconvenience they may be creating for the customer. Because it's one thing to think, oh, that was an annoying checkout experience. But it's another thing to think, I don't think this brand understands what's important to me. You know, for, for so many, I called my book Winning Digital Customers. Digital customers referring to those customers today that are living a digitally centric lifestyle. And that is increasingly a large majority of the population today. And obviously, as you look at generations, the younger the generation, the larger the majority that's living that phone-centric, digitally-centric lifestyle. And when you look at brands and you track brands and their success in the marketplace, there's several key questions that are often asked in brand tracking studies. And we've been asking these questions for decades. One of them is, is this a brand for someone like me? Someone would say, you know, Maserati is a great brand but they're not a brand for someone like me. For someone like me, a Ford Mustang is a lot better. You know, That just feels like it's for someone like me. And of course, that's someone who might have great admiration for the Maserati brand, but they're not gonna buy it. So we really wanna understand not just what do you think of a brand, but is it a brand for someone like you? Well, if you're someone who's a highly digitally enabled person and you see a brand that's exhibiting a little bit of digital you know, a clumsiness or a lot, that tends to make people say, yeah, you know, I'm not saying they're not a great bank, I'm not saying they're not a great insurance company. I'm not saying they're not a great store or whatever else, but I don't think they're for someone like me. And that's 
really, really damaging to that relationship with that brand. So it's a, it should be a big priority for everybody. That's a really fascinating change, I think, is what you said there, which is it's it's literally the experience. I agree. I think there was for I just I'm thinking of my personal experience going through this. I think there's this time period where we were acceptable, if you may, right, to have not expecting a furniture company for, you know, to to be able to give me a good experience. You know, it's just like, okay, I, I understand it because they're not in they're not doing digital, if you may, you know, they're, they're nothing about it. But what you're saying today is now people are going, I'm not sure if I'm going to buy that sofa from them anymore. Right. You know, because of they had the experience. Ironically, I had somebody who was quote unquote, this doesn't sound bad. The sofa king, <laughs> the, 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 but he said he did this. He had this incredible online experience and he was winning him a ton of customers as a result of going towards something like that. So Let's talk about your book a little bit. You know, you got a Wall Street Journal, you know, one of the bestsellers out there in terms of digital marketing. What are the key principles that that you want to share or have shared, if you may, with those who haven't read the book so far? Sure. Well, you know, I've spent a, my whole career really helping large brands through that transformation process to get from where they are, wherever they're starting from, to where they need to be, to really meet the needs of the digital customers of that moment. And over those years, I've been involved in dozens and dozens and dozens of transformation efforts at, at different, say, Fortune 1000 type companies. And some of them have gone extremely well. And I've been fortunate to be part of some huge successes. And frankly, some of them have not gone so well. And we've learned some painful lessons and we've got some scars. And so this book was really an opportunity to, to put out there the process that we have evolved to at my company, which is a consulting firm, that drives a high degree of predictability and success around these kinds of transformations. And I'd never say that there's only one right way to do anything. There's many right ways, but there are also definitely wrong ways, things that don't work. And what I've got in the book that I'm trying to lay out is, well, here is a path to success. This is a path, a five-step process to transforming a company to get much more love and appreciation from their customers, much more preference from their customers by delivering a far better digital experience. And so the book is defining those five steps that you go through. And within each of those steps goes into some detail about how do you go about that? We try to be as concrete and you know blueprinty as possible. So it tells you what to do. And in fact, there's also supplemental eBooks and videos and templates and other materials with the hope that this really is a book that people can use. And I'm, I'm hearing, I'm very gratified when I hear from people using the book that say, yeah, we bought it for our whole team. We've all got dog-eared copies of it. We're using it to drive our planning. And that's that's music to my ears because that's exactly what I, I hope would happen. People would take the lessons that we've learned from decades and then take it and compress it for themselves and be able to say, hey, we can jumpstart our efforts. We can follow some some paths that have been painfully bushwhacked through the woods, you know, and now we can go that 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 process more easily. So that was the kind of primary goal of the book. So if you could just real briefly, like in a, in a, in a two minutes go, kind of highlight those five steps. Sure, sure. So the first step is to understand your customer. And the principle behind this is to say that, you know, driving digital transformation, transformation is just a fancy word for change. You're, you're going to change your company in some way, shape or form. But of course, you could change a company in lots of ways that don't make it perform better. You could change a company in ways that customers like you less, you make less revenue, you're less profitable. So just changing something is not inherently a good thing. You need to aim that change and figure out, well, you know, what are the changes that are actually going to drive me to greater success? And 
there are many factors that influence the success of a company, but a primary idea behind all my work is that there's one principle of a company, one capability of a company that's much more important than any other, which is their ability to influence the behavior of their customers. Because if you can get your customers to do what you want them to do, and their prospects, of course, to get them to buy, to buy more, to buy more often, to tell their friends, to not call your call center and keep them on the phone for two hours and waste your money, you know, to not post negative reviews about you, et cetera. If you can get your customers to behave the way you'd like them to, man, that'll cover a multitude of other sins, even if not every other part of your business is fantastic. And if you can't get your customers to do that, but you have the world's best legal department and a really killer CFO and a great ERP system, you probably don't have much of a business. So this is number one in my book. And so if we're going to aim change, we're going to aim transformation, we want to aim it in a way that's going to enable us to drive even more effective customer you know, influence and customer behavior. And so the first foundational thing we need to really do is understand our customer, understand what is it that they're looking for? What are their hopes, dreams, and fears? Where are we letting them down today? Because every customer is let, every company is letting their customers down in numerous ways across the customer journey. No one's perfect, not even Apple and Amazon. And there are plenty of companies that are nowhere near as good at that as Apple and Amazon. So where are those opportunities to improve? Where are our competitors letting them down? Where if we could shine, we could still share from our competitors. You know, how do we make sure we really understand that? Because that is the thing that's going to enable us to aim what are the kinds of transformations that are going to make the biggest difference. So that's that's the first step. And in the book, I go into great depth about, so how do you do that? What are the research techniques you can use to really get a clear picture of your customer? Then the second step is to map the journey, to understand, first of all, so what happens today when your customer tries to do business with you? First of all, what triggers them to come to your business in the first place? Why do they walk in the door of your store? Is it because they heard about you? Were they just walking down the street? Did they see an ad in a magazine? And of course, there's going to be different answers to that, but to try to understand what are the different journeys and which occur with what frequency. And then what happens when they walk into your store? And do they actually have the experience you want them to have? You have probably a vision of, oh, they come in, they find the product they want, they take it to the checkout. But is that what happens? Or do they come in and ask which aisle has you know such and such product and they get told the wrong aisle? And they wind up wander around your store for 15 minutes, confused and lost. And then they ask to use the bathroom and the toilet is broken. And, you know, they try to check out and there's only one lane open and there's 18 people in it. You know, what is the real story of what happens when people try to do business with you? And I may be exaggerating a little bit that there's all these problems. Of course, there's probably great things, too. If you're running a business that's successful at some level, you must be doing a lot of things right. But the real money is in finding the things that you're you're doing wrong or the areas you're letting customers down. And so then once you've got that understanding of what really happens today to create a transformational vision and say, well, if we were to edit that journey, if we were to create a vision of what that journey should be so that we could stand toe to toe with any competitor in the marketplace and know that we are delivering a superior experience and we are giving the customer every reason to prefer us, well, that vision is really, really valuable. So that's the second step is to get from where you are to the vision of what that customer journey experience should be at some point in the future. And very often that's a little bit intimidating, you know, because you create that vision of what your, how your business, if you were going to rebuild your business from the ground up, imagine it didn't exist. And you're going to say, with everything I know, how would I build it now? And you, you almost don't, don't want to say, you know, because <laughs> you know that as soon as you do, someone's going to say, well, okay, you should get from where you are to that vision. And a lot of times it's like, oh my God, to transform this thing I've got into that vision. 
like sometimes it feels like no one's career is long enough or that that's just such an arduous thing to try to do. But but that's that's the path to success. And so and, you know, it's funny because it used to be that it seemed like the only companies that were really great at digital were pure play digital companies. You know, people would say, oh, well, sure, Facebook and Amazon and Netflix. But but, you know, we're Citibank or we're, you know, what Bed Bath and Beyond, you know, who just closed 50 stores, you know, we're, we're a pre-digital company. It's easy for them supposedly to be born that way. But how do we get from here? Is it even possible for, for pre-digital companies to make that transition? But now today we have all kinds of examples of pre-digital companies that have done it very successfully. So there's sort of like no excuse. You have to come up with the vision to get there. So anyway, the last few steps are once you've got that vision, we use a lot, we talk about build the future. And in the book, we talk about a lot of principles of design thinking. How do you actually create the detailed planning and execution of the applications, apps, websites, chatbots, whatever other different components that are needed to make that vision a reality? And then while those three steps are going on, how do you optimize the present? You can create a bold long-term vision for the future, but if it takes you two years to get there, you know, you got to give your customers some level of improvement more rapidly than that. And sometimes you have to give your shareholders some improvement before then, or your CEO or whoever's funding it. So how do you identify the quick hits that you can be doing to get small incremental improvements while you're making bold transformational change? And then the last thing we talk about in the book is leading change. And of course, you don't, you don't end with leadership. Leadership arguably has to be the first thing that you do. But in the book, we talk about it last because I feel like it's easier to understand what is it you've got to try to accomplish before you ask the question, what kind of leader is needed to be able to drive that kind of transformation? But leading companies through transformation is very difficult. It's much harder than leading a company during a period where all you're trying to do is drive incremental change. And one of the biggest challenges that transformational leaders have is the organization itself resisting that transformation, the employees resisting that transformation. So we talk in the book at great length about why do people resist change and what are a bunch of tactics that leaders can use to try to overcome that resistance. So try to give you the whole book and I don't know if I made your two minute timeline, but you know, try to give you the whole book in a very re reasonably concise way, but that's the five steps. Thank you. Thank you for going through that five steps. I want to talk about that organizational change resistance because it's Arguably, the the you could you could do steps one through four perfectly, and if you don't have the leadership in place to overcome the changes, it's going to die. You're going to spend all this money, and it's not going to happen because people were used used to using an old system, you know, an old way of communicating, and they refuse to go to the new method. And one of the crazy things is fifty one percent Gallup's tells us fifty one percent of people who are against it are your middle managers are the people who are actually have to put this change in to begin with. So from that perspective, so Howard, how do we, what are two or three tips that we can help overcome this organizational change resistance that we see so often when trying to make great changes in organizations? Sure. Well, I'd say the first is empathy. To get that, well, let me put it like this. I think there's a small percentage of people in the world, I, I would unscientifically guess that maybe it's five to 10% that just love change, that love innovation, they love growth. And you and I may both be those types of people. And a lot of times the people that are leading big programs and companies, they're those people, but they are abnormal. <laughs> Most people, when they hear, we're gonna make this giant change in the organization and everything's gonna be different, but it's gonna be awesome in the future. Most people just hear, 
that sounds like a huge hassle. That sounds like a lot of overtime. That sounds like a lot of risk. And, you know, how can we avoid this? This does not sound so delightful. And even though you're painting a picture of something great at the end, it just sounds like it's like it sounds like someone like, all you have to do is lose 60 pounds and you're going to look fantastic. And most people don't focus on looking fantastic. They focus on lose 60 pounds, man. Forget it. I, I am what I am. You know, that's the first thing is to, is to get that. And not, not just generally to get it, but the, that's the first step though, is to not expect everyone to share your enthusiasm for change because they don't have the same mindset and psychology as you do. And that's not a bad thing. You know, everyone's different. And secondly, then to try to understand in more detail, why are they resisting change? And there's a number of different reasons and different people at different levels resist change for different reasons. For example, some people who are a vice president or a senior vice president, they might have a kind of a, a kind of an empire within the organization. Maybe they're in charge of the call centers and you have this vision where you're not going to need nearly so many call centers because everything's going to be digital self-service. Well, for the guy who runs the call centers, he's imagining his budget getting slashed. He's imagining laying off people on his team. Is that going to be good for him? It may be good for the company, might be good for the shareholders, but Maybe not so good for him. If you're the guy who knows COBOL programming, which is what the mainframe is programmed in or whatever, and you're going to move to an entirely new digital stack used, using you know, software development technologies, technologies that you don't know, and that kids from the university can probably be hired for a third of your salary who do know, is that good for you? Is that good for your job security? So there's definitely people out there who have a perfectly rational reason for resisting change. And so we need to think about that and get clear on all the different reasons. And there are many more rational reasons. And then there are plenty of irrational reasons, just people who, who have a natural, almost evolutionary built-in fear that change will be bad for them. And they'd rather stick with the status quo. They'd rather be in a company that's slowly declining into oblivion than a company that potentially is going to try a radical, bold thing that has even a 5% chance of failure. You know, because that fear of failure is so great. So, you know, there's a lot of things that, that, that you can do to try to overcome these. One is to give people a voice and make people feel that they're part of a solution. And you can do that very generally by making sure that all employees understand the general goals and are encouraged and, and, and uh, welcomed into the discussion about how you can move the company forward. And you can do it very specifically with particularly the most sort of senior people who have the most arrows in their quiver if they're going to try to attack, subvert, and sabotage the change that you're trying to drive. Those are the people naturally you have to be the most concerned about. And so it really is a case-by-case -case basis, but you want to ask the question, how can I convince the guy who's the head of the call centers that after this transformation, he's going to be more important than ever? And what he brings to the company is more critical than ever. And how you convince him of that, I don't know, because I don't know him at your company, but it could be because he needs to think about how our relationship with our customers differently. And it may not be on the phone, but we still expect him to be in charge of something or, or whatnot. You know, you need to think about the sort of the politics of that. One of the things that we do a lot is we do workshops. We bring people together, executives and also people from the call center or people from customer support in the stores or whatever it may be. Spend a few days looking at the transformation and generating ideas and brainstorming and prioritizing and, and creating roadmaps of how we get where we want to go that involve large numbers of people. And that's beneficial for multiple reasons. First of all, you often get great ideas out of sessions like that. You often get great knowledge and insights that you wouldn't otherwise get. And you also get more people who feel they have their fingerprints on this initiative. There's a, a kind of a, a saying that comes out of a lot of uh, the workshop methodologies that we use in my company that were originally developed by Matt and Gail Taylor. 
And they say that people resist change, but they support the change that they initiate. And so if you can get large numbers of people to feel that they had a hand in initiating the change, you're likely to get a lot more buy-in to the change itself. So those are a few, anyway, tips and tricks for helping overcome resistance, but it's a tricky problem. Yeah, it really is. I, I think there's a really good insight, especially that last one of, of whenever you can get, there's always this tricky part of strategic planning and implementation. Of, there's this desire of the executives to, we, we figured it out, we got it all nailed. And then the problem is those below are like, this isn't my problem to solve. It's your problem and I'm busy. Yeah. Right. And then even that, when you said it, it's a risk of my job, right? That's even a higher, like, no way are they going to like help you out in that scenario. So that buy-in part, I think is huge. And I love it how you do workshops to help create that, foster that confidence, right? That they could be a part of the solution rather than not. And, you know, sometimes we'll have like a senior executive, like a CSO or a chief digital officer, chief marketing officer, when I come to us and say, okay, we want you to do a workshop. And we've got the solution all figured out, just, just, like, just like you just said, Carl. And say, what we want you to do in the workshop is bring all our people together and get them on board with this <laughs> solution concept that we have. Like, like we're hypnotists or something, you know? And we said, well, okay, I get the goal. I get what you're trying to accomplish. Imagine if we brought everyone together and instead of getting them on board with your solution, what if they created a solution that was even better that they could all get on board with? Would that, would that meet your needs, you know? And a lot of times you get, well, what do you mean? Better how? You know, I'm like, I don't know better how, but just imagine. Could you imagine a better solution? No, I can't imagine there could be a better solution in the world, in the universe, than the one that we've already come up with. Really? That's, that's a lot of hubris, but okay. You got to have a lot of confidence to be a senior executive. So I get it. But in all seriousness, what we'll then often say is, okay, you need this buy-in. Imagine we brought people together and they came up with a solution that was only 80% as good as the solution you've come up with but that they all bought into. I would suggest that the solution that's only 80% as good as if such a thing could even be measured, but just pretend that it could be, is far more valuable than a 100% solution that only you, the senior executives or whatnot, are in favor of. And so what we'll often do in workshops is not say, here's the solution, now let's spend two days getting everyone to agree, but to sort of deconstruct it and say, well, there's a reason we have this solution. And it's usually a combination of two things problem components, right? Because you wouldn't need a strategy if everything was perfect. You'd say, there's nothing to do, right? Just keep doing what we're doing now. You're yep. trying to drive change because you're trying to improve something. So there's gotta be some kind of a problem, problem, opportunity, whatever you wanna call it. Here's this thing that we're not yet fully optimizing. And then over here, so that's a problem components. And then you've got solution components. Well, how could we solve this problem? Well, you know, it's kind of like that scene in Apollo 13 where the guy dumps all the stuff on the table, you know? well. We've got some technologies, we've got some people with skills, we've got some partnerships, we've got a brand, we've got all these components. And so if you lay it all out and say, well, we're trying to solve for this stuff, and here's some of the stuff we've got, and then you ask people, well, how would you potentially use this stuff to solve for this stuff? First of all, if the idea, the original idea is really that strong, they're probably going to come up with it themselves. Because well, let's face it, most ideas aren't like rocket science, right? And so if they come up with it themselves, like Eureka. Now, instead of telling them the solution, they've essentially reinvented the solution and now they really own it. And like I said before, they might also come up with something better or something different, arguably similarly good or even not quite as good, but they're going to have that alignment. So that's kind of like how we like to think about this process of, of 
you know, uh, dealing with this phenomenon of the executives who think they've got it all figured out. It is so fascinating how, you know, leadership is typically the ones who are listening to these type of podcasts and it's the, the having the humility, right, to be willing to accept that, hey, you know, there might be a better way. And it's, I love it what you said there, it's better, even if it's not a perfect solution, but it's a solution that they came up with right? The, the broader team, because they're much more likely once again, the why is because you need everybody to implement it. You need everybody to be on board. And if people are not on board, it's just, it's just going to be an uphill battle the entire time because people will shake their hand. Yes. But the inside they'll be nodding. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, sorry, I think the vice versa there, but they right. will be actively in. And the worst part, there's those who actively say no, but then there's those who inactively say no. Right. And they'll subvert the entire implementation, especially if they're in a key leadership role on one of the areas. That's no, right. You, you, you got to right. figure that that anybody who's risen to a senior level in your organization is probably pretty smart. That's right. It's probably probably pretty resourceful, probably pr- pretty skilled, probably pretty politically skilled. And if, imagine if you had all those people all pushing in the same direction, how far you could go. So many organizations. The reason they move slowly is that there's this rock, the company, and there's some people pulling in in this direction at 10 miles an hour, but there's a bunch of people pulling in in this direction, maybe at seven miles an hour. So what happens? First of all, the rock moves at three miles an hour. And second of all, you've got 17 miles an hour of effort being put in to move the rock at three miles an hour. This is why alignment is so valuable. If you could get all, I mean, what's the multiple, right? Six times. I mean, I'm just making up numbers here, but it's a huge difference. It's kind of like the difference between, you know, it's kind of like when you're trying to get someone to vote, you know, if you can get someone who wasn't going to vote to vote for your candidate, that's one vote. But if you can get someone who's going to vote for the other candidate to vote for your candidate, that's two votes. Mm -hmm. You just got two votes because you took one away and you added one over here. So, you know, this is, this is the opportunity of really getting people aligned versus what most companies do, which is endless isometric effort with only a sl- isometric effort with a slight imbalance is how progress happens in most companies today. So Howard, how do we, a lot of people are listening to this, so they're going, okay, there, there's, there's, of course, tens of thousands, millions of people that are working for Fortune 1000 companies where this really applies to. But I would actually argue a lot of this applies to small and medium businesses as well. But they obviously don't have the big, huge budgets, right? You know, they, they're they the large companies where they're spending more on paperclips than the revenue of a small to medium business size company, if there are paperclips anymore. But you get where I'm heading at there. So Howard, give us some strategies or some concepts that a small to medium sized business should be doing in today's digital world. Sure. Well, you know, it's funny, the, when I wrote the book, my experience in my career is all working with big brands. And so I wrote this book about what we've learned working with big brands. And when I first, I did a bunch of podcasts, right? When the first books have been out almost two years. When the first book first came out, some people asked me about its application for small and medium businesses. And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to think it's relevant, but to be perfectly honest, it didn't come from that. I haven't tested it in those types of environments. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to hear if people use it, but I, I really can't speak to it. But now I've been getting a lot of feedback and I've heard from a lot of people at the small and medium business world that they're applying a lot of the principles of the book and they're using them very successfully. And so let me give you a few examples. One of the things the book talks about in length is how to do customer research. That first step, the thing that is the aiming of digital transformation. If you do, don't do that or you do that wrong, you're flying blind with everything else. So it's, it's absolutely critical and foundational. And in there, we describe, well, how do you 
think about what customers to study and how do you recruit those customers and do you interview them or survey them or watch them? You know, there's a variety of different techniques and we talk about those things and we try to give people enough knowledge and insight that they could potentially go do it on their own. Now, there's no substitute for people who spent 20 years and are experts at doing customer research. But on the other hand, you know, you can do quick and dirty customer research in any small business without a tremendous amount of expertise, without a tremendous amount of cost. And it's a little bit like when people talk about how many customers you should study. You know, it's always a big question when you do customer research, how many customers are I need to talk to? Let's say you're gonna do customer interviews. And what I always say is, well, one is a lot more than zero. Now, you know, there's some danger in only talking to one customer because you could get like an outlier, but still a heck of a lot. And two is way more than one, you know? And five is a lot more than two, you know, and then there's a diminishing return curve, you know, 500 may not be that much more than 100, because you might have heard a lot of the same things at 100 versus 500. So one of the goals is re research is to figure out the sweet spot. But it's the same with exp expertise, you know, you know what, you know, having a little bit of expertise, like you can get from reading a book like mine is a lot more than trying to do it with no expertise. Of course, again, somebody like the people who work for my company or consultants have done this for decades, of course, they're going to be able to do it much more with much more experience. But if, you, if you're looking to do it on a budget, can read the book, can watch a couple of videos, spend a day studying up on the techniques. We talk about the pitfalls, the pros and cons, how to go about it. Get out there and spend some time with your customers and you can learn a ton. So I think that's one example of something. You don't need money. You don't need fancy consultants or anything like that. And then another is just prototyping solutions. You know, Oh, well, before I even say that, mindset is so important to success. You know, you mentioned humility. I, I think humility is, is key to so much about success in business. And it certainly goes to customer research, right? To not assume you know what your customers want. To not assume you're, well, I've been doing this. I've been running this bakery for 10 years. Surely I know what my customers want. Maybe, maybe. Surely you're not totally clueless about what your customers want, without a, without a doubt, or you couldn't be running the bakery successfully. But what percentage of insight do you have? Is it 80%? Is it 60%? I would say most businesses, they understand about 60% of their customers' mindsets, needs, wants. 60 is a lot more than zero, you know, but that means there's a whole bunch of upside potential if you understood more. So I think that, again, any business needs that kind of insight and, and that mindset of not just always looking for improvements, but always looking for being thirsty to understand more about where the customer where are there gaps in the customer satisfaction that could be filled? And the last thing I'd say is prototyping solutions. You know, I mean, so much what happens so often is you do customer research and you start to understand a problem. Like I said before, the problem, the solution. And then it's a very natural human instinct. Our brains are, our brains are problem-solving machines. If I described a problem to you right now, your brain wouldn't be able to stop but starting to suggest solutions. You may or may not verbalize them, but like your brain is working on the problem as soon as it is articulated. That's how intent the brain is on solving problems. And so when we do some research and we start to learn about some issues our customers have, we're going to start to go, oh, I know we need a, this, we need a queuing system. We need a, we need a book, you know, we need a, a thing to do this or a, a chatbot for that. And humility also leads us to say, those are all hypotheses. You may have understood the problem, but those may or may not be solutions to the problem. And one of the principles that's key to design thinking, and we talk a lot about design thinking in the book, is prototyping solutions, creating inexpensive, quick and dirty ways of solving the problem. You know, if you think you should create a chatbot 
start by pretending it's a chatbot, but putting a human on the other side, you know, and, and just see whether it actually solves the problem. It may, and in which case you might invest in building the chatbot, or it might not work at all. And customers might not want to interact with the, it that way, even though it solves a problem because it's not the solution that customers want to their problem. So that would be the other, again, I'm just picking a few things. There's so much more in the book, but these are all things that any size business can do. You know, in fact, improving the digital experience or the overall customer experience is so much easier for small and medium businesses than it is for large businesses. Imagine you're running one coffee shop and you do a day or two of customer research and you come up with some ideas for improving the customer experience, you could probably implement them the next week. Or imagine your Starbucks. How hard is it to roll out an improvement to the customer experience at how many, what, 600,000 Starbucks locations? I mean, I don't know how many there are, right? How many employees would you have to train? It's a much larger undertaking. And so take advantage. And, and by the way, you might say, well, you know, it's apples and oranges, but does your small coffee shop compete with Starbucks? Probably. There's probably Starbucks down the street. So even though you're one coffee shop and Starbucks is a gajillion on a daily basis for someone walking down the street wanting a cup of coffee, you're there competing with Starbucks and you can do it faster and leaner and more agile than Starbucks can because of your small size. So take advantage of that and you know compete. You might not be the you might not compete with Starbucks in terms of their total corporate revenue, but you can compete with that one store down the street. And that's probably what you're trying to do if you're running one coffee shop. That's excellent, Howard. So how do you measure success for your clients in your business? Well, it starts by getting clear on how they measure success because our job is to help them accomplish their goals. So whatever their goals are. Having said that, most companies have the same top level goals. What are they trying to do? More revenue, more profit, greater shareholder value. And everything else kind of sits under that. And usually that means how do you get more revenue? Well, you know, more customers or get, getting customers to buy more or raising your prices. You know, there's a handful of things you can do. You know, how do you improve profit? More revenue, lower cost, lower, you know. So, so kind of working down from that common set of goals, you start to get to more diverse and unique goals. If you're an auto manufacturer, you have some very different goals than if you're a bakery versus if you're, you know, a, a, an insurance company or whatever else. But we're always looking to make sure that whatever we do, we're driving those business goals you know, for example, we developed the trip, the most recent AAA roadside assistance app. So if you're stranded on the side of the road and you have AAA, push a button in the app, period, it'll take some basic information from you, like which tire is flat or whatever else, and tell you when the tow truck's going to be there and let you track it just like Uber. Great app. And, you know, so, so, but very specifically, AAA had some goals. They wanted people to engage more digitally instead of everyone calling the call center for multiple reasons. For one thing, it's more expensive when they call the call center. For another thing, they can serve people better when they don't have people queuing up waiting to talk to someone in a call center. They can take in more in, in, incoming requests. And one of the problems a company like AAA has is it's very weather dependent. It's seasonally dependent. So there's some days when they've got people sitting around waiting for your call. And there are other days where there's a horrible snowstorm going on in your area and everybody's getting into a car accident. And it's, you know, what can you do? It's harder to scale human you know, call center than it is to scale digital. So they had some very concrete reasons, both the benefit of them and the customer. And so in a case like that, we're going to be like, okay, how do we measure the very specific things that we're trying to accomplish here? What percentage of people that would have called the call center are using the digital? Are people starting with digital and then calling the call center or vice versa? Are they staying in digital the whole time, et cetera? So I think every project needs to have that part of it where you ask yourself, how are we going to measure this? What, is, what are our ultimate goals? And then what are the things, because sometimes you have goals that are hard to measure. You know, we want to improve the customer's perception of our brand. 
Okay, great. How will we know when we've accomplished that? Well, you might say, well, we need to do some active things to measure it. Some things are automatically measured, like sales, your transaction systems measuring sales, but other things you need to be proactive and saying, what are the, how do we put in the right turnstiles, so to speak, to make sure that we are measuring that on an ongoing basis. And that measurement KPI strategy is a key part of any transformation effort. All right, we're going to, we're going to pivot and we only got a couple minutes for it. So you decide. You're a busy person. You are working with, once again, some of the largest companies in the world or organizations on helping to do digital transformation. You've had multiple companies. You've written a book. How, what type of habits do you do on a consistent basis to help give yourself the energy, the effort to keep on making a difference out there in the world? Well, I mean, for one thing, I, I you know, I do what I love. If my parents had their way, I would have gone to law school, you know? <laughs> which I did not do. You know, I've always pursued what interested me. I studied theater when I was in school. I've, I've just, uh, I, I pursued digital, not because I thought it was a path to money, but because it was what I was excited about. And I, I've really always driven myself by what I'm enthusiastic about. And so that has led me to, someone said to me the other day, Howard, you're a great salesman. And I said, actually, I'm really not a salesman at all because I, I think a great salesman should be able to sell anything, you know? And that's not me. I'm just really enthusiastic about certain things. And then those are the things I go do. So, you know, I'm able to convey that enthusiasm. So I think that's a huge part of it is just do the things that, that you're excited about. I'd say another thing is, you know, I've been, I've had the great opportunity to work with Tony Robbins for many years. I'm a trainer with the Tony Robbins organization. I've gotten, you know, been, I can't imagine how many thousands of hours I've spent in, in, with Tony Robbins in one form or another. And uh, I think his work is amazing. And one aspect of his work is a system called RPM which is a, essentially a, a task management process, but it helps you think about what your goals are and how to break those goals into smaller chunks and make sure you stay focused on the outcome that gets you really excited. Because take something like writing a book, you know, there are a lot of aspects of writing a book that aren't super fun. Sometimes you're frustrated, you're in the middle of something, it's not working and you're putting all this time in and you wonder if you're ever going to get to the end. And one thing that's helpful is focus on the outcome. Focus on the people that are out there that you really want to help and support. Focus on the business impact that that book is going to have. You know, I wanted the book to become a bestseller. Of course, I didn't know that that was definitely going to happen, but that was a goal that I had when I was writing the book. Think about that outcome that you're striving toward instead of the whatever, you know, if I've got to proofread the book for the seventh time, I mean, it's not exactly like something you wake up in the morning and be like, I want to spend the whole day proofreading my book. But um, that's, if you think about the outcome, you're much more likely to be energetic. I do also do meditation. I do transcendental meditation, which I went to some classes to learn gosh, probably 10 years ago. And I don't do it. I'm supposed to do it twice a day. I don't even do it once a day. I probably some days, maybe, maybe I do it three or four times a week, probably, but still I find that helpful. And I find that if I find myself getting more overwhelmed or more stressed, I do it more and it only takes 20 minutes. And uh, I, I think that's a, that's a great practice. Some people have tough, tough time learning it, but, and so it doesn't work for everybody, but it's worked well for me. What's a book that you'd recommend for our audience? Well, I would say, I feel like I'm being subliminally suggested to say good to great, the 10X rule, grit, profit. <laughs> behind me here, exactly. Behind <laughs> here, exactly. I'm like, hmm, if this was like a marketing research study, I would say there's a major like confound in your research methodology by presenting me pictures of all these books. By the way, I see a nice spot right between Jim Collins and Grant Cardone. It's the perfect size for winning digital customers. So I'm happy to send you a copy. I think that's, you know, I see you have a, a space there. I always like to fill an empty please, space. Please, please. We, we love to put our guest up and put him up on here. So we'd love to see it. 
All right, shoot me your address, I'll send you a book. I was just joking, but I'm be, be honored if you would. No, I think uh, certainly Tony Robbins key books, especially the earlier ones, honestly, the more recent ones have been about finance, which are great, but books like Awaken the Giant Within, I think are fantastic. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is a book that I always recommend. I read it when I was in college. I've reread it a few times. I just recommend it to my daughter who's in college. I just think that's an amazing book. And uh, well, anyway, you asked me for one, I gave you. Yeah, no, so. perfect. Okay. Finally, how can people learn, you know, get a hold of you, learn more about you? Sure. Well, if you're interested in learning more about the book, it's available on you know Amazon and at Barnes and Noble and usual places you'd find a book. But there's also a website for the book at winningdigitalcustomers.com. Winningdigitalcustomers.com. If you go there, you can download the first chapter for free, sign up for my mailing list. And there's also links to all the different places you can buy the book, either like Kindle and Apple Books and all that, as well as you know Barnes and Noble and Apple websites and Amazon websites and things like that. I'm also very active on LinkedIn. I post a new thought leadership content at least three or four times a week. So encourage everyone to come find me there. And if you're interested in learning more about my consulting firm from the Digital Transformation Agency, you can find us at from.digital. Howard, this has been amazing to having you on the show. Please hang on. As you said, I got to make sure I follow up with something to get your, your swag sure. with all of our guests. But, uh, <laughs> oh, good. Thank you so much for being on the Measure Success Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Carl. I enjoyed it. And to everyone else who's listening, to all of our guests, wishing you the very best and measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.